When accepting a fight in the world of combat sports, there is understandably a certain amount of negotiation and agreements that have to be put in place before things can go ahead. I mean, we don't have the unified rules of mixed martial arts for no reason. Both competitors want as even a playing field as possible, and regulatory bodies do their best to ensure the competition itself is both as exciting and as safe as possible, relatively speaking, considering this is the Hurt Business. However, throughout mixed martial arts history, there have been several bouts and even entire organizations that saw fit to change what we would consider the standardized MMA rule set. Sometimes the specifics of these contests are so far removed from what we are used to that either the matchup rule sets imposed or even the weight class the fight is contested at seems somewhat ridiculous. So let's take a look at the top 10 examples of this. I'm Balian from MMA On Point and this is the 10 most ridiculous fight stipulations. Number 10. Krokop vs. Vandalay Silva 1 before the Croatian kickboxing and mixed martial arts legend began dominating in pride, he was launching his cemetery inducing head kicks in the biggest kickboxing organization in the world, K1. At the same time, the axe murderer Vandalay Silva was dishing out his own form of punishment in the pride organization, and when Krokop cited a dissatisfaction with the competition in K1 and decided to make the switch to MMA, this was a matchup fans were dying to see. Vandy was, at the time, the pride middleweight champion, and Krokop was just making the transition to MMA, this being his fourth fight. As such, a specific set of stipulations were put into place to ensure the fight remained as fair as possible. The time frame was changed from three five-minute rounds instead of Pride's usual ten then five minutes. If the fight went to the ground but reached the ropes, it would be returned to the feet, and if the fight went the distance, it would go to a draw. Which, unfortunately, it did, but the fight itself saw two of the most aggressive and powerful strikers in the sport have at it for 15 minutes, with taunting, takedowns, and more body kicks than a human should be able to absorb. An interesting point in MMA history this, Alex Pereira, a former kickboxer, made his UFC debut with essentially the same amount of MMA contests as Krokop had before this one, and there's no stipulation surrounding his transition. Number 9. Paulo Costa vs Marvin Vittori when agreeing to fight someone in mixed martial arts as well as a venue and a date, it's also very common to agree upon a weight class that the fight will take place at. I mean, most of the time, I doubt it's a big part of the discussion, especially if both fighters have contested their entire UFC career at middleweight, but in the case of Marvin Vittori and Paolo Costa, apparently things weren't exactly clear. Or at least that's a story Costa gave after revealing on the Wednesday of fight week he was 211 pounds and wouldn't be making weight for their middleweight bout at UFC Vegas 41. So instead, the fight was changed to a catchweight of 195 pounds, giving him a 10-pound allowance but apparently that was not enough for the Brazilian brawler, and so in order to get the fight regulated, it was changed to a light heavyweight contest at 205 pounds. Apparently, it was a bicep injury of all things that had prevented Costa from being able to cut the weight, because he certainly came into the contest in shape and had cardio for the full five rounds. Still pretty ridiculous situation for Vittori, not too dissimilar from what we saw in the return of Nick Diaz against Lawler earlier in 2021, where in the lead-up to the fight, the contest was changed to 185 pounds at the request of Diaz. 20% of your purse is currently all you lose when not hitting the agreed weight limit, but after a recent surge in this behavior, I wonder if the ruling will soon change. Number 8. MMA Crossovers of course, if you're an MMA athlete, you need to know how to strike, and there are a lot of martial arts to choose from, but certainly the one with arguably the most amount of transferable skills is that of Muay Thai. Kicks, punches, elbows, clinch attacks, and takedowns, there is a lot to translate into the sport, and as such, there are plenty of MMA athletes who pride themselves on having a solid Muay Thai base. So solid, in fact, that there have been MMA promotions that have put on super fights with the stars of Muay Thai and kickboxing competing against that of MMA. The most recent example being the upcoming bout between former UFC champions 
champion Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson and kickboxing legend Rod Tang. It goes down at 1x on the 5th of December and the contest will rotate between one round of Muay Thai and one round of MMA, giving each fighter their opportunity to succeed. This also happened back when the master of flying submissions and Japanese MMA legend Shinya Aoki took on K1 kickboxer and cosplayer Yuchihiro Nagashima. Aoki did well to survive the kickboxing round, but as soon as the bell rang for the MMA one, well, it was a kind of Masvidal Askren scenario as Aoki went straight for the takedown and was KO'd instantly by a flying knee. Pretty out there idea in terms of a promotion. I mean, the only thing that's come close is bully beatdown. In either case, I hope Rod Tang has been taking notes. Number seven, Combat Eight. I'm sure for those of you that prefer to see stand-up wars opposed to a grappling engagement have often wondered what MMA would be like if they added a stand-up clock to the contest. So after a certain period of time on the mat, the ref would simply stand the fight back up to resume on the feet. But of course, that's a pretty ridiculous stipulation, right? Very biased towards strikers. Any BJJ artist worth his salt would probably have something to say about allowing their opponent to return to the feet mid-Kimura. You might as well be kickboxing. But that didn't stop MMA promotion Combat 8 from implementing this as part of their rule set. With Get This, the rule being you can only take your opponent to the ground for 30 seconds each round, basically trying to encourage activity, submission attempts, and ground and pound once the fight hits the mat. Some notable Aussie fighters have competed in this promotion, including Tai Tuivasa, who actually lost against fellow mate Peter Graham. He can't even hold his hands up. It's over! Peter Graham's beaten! But technically, Combat 8 falls under modified MMA, so his professional record remained untarnished until he met JDS, of course. Similar rules also took place in a fabled matchup between Butterbean and Cabbage at Rumble on the Rock 9 in Hawaii, with the fight only allowed to remain on the ground for 15 seconds. Honestly, why not just do kickboxing at that point? Still, Rumble on the Rock is an MMA promotion, and for an MMA fight, that's a pretty ridiculous stipulation. Number 6. Pancrase there have been some truly epic mixed martial arts promotions across this sport's history. Many have come and gone and each has had its own nuances, but for the most part operated under the same set of rules. Yes, there were organizations like Pride that changed round timers, the techniques you could use, even the scoring, but for all intents and purposes, it was still MMA. Athletes moved in or out of the promotion without too much difficulty, and a win or a loss affected their record, as they did at fellow Japanese promotion Pancrase, which began in 1993 and had a slew of MMA talent come through its doors over the years. Each of whom had to operate under their unique rule set. No striking with a closed fist to the head, which of course meant no elbows or knees on the ground, but more interestingly, if the grappling action got too close to the ropes, it was stood up, and if you were caught in a submission, you could reach out to them and use a rope break, forfeiting a point but getting the submission released and stood back to the feet. But you could only do this five times before you ran out of escapes, as well as this if a knockdown occurred, a standing 10 count was issued similar to boxing, and if you survived, you would also lose a point. They also had a yellow card and red card system similar to the winner, if both parties survived, would be the one who had lost fewer points. Apparently, despite all this, it still counts as MMA, and many fighters' records represent that regardless of the various stipulations. Rings was also another promotion operating around this time with a very similar rule set, and although this might have been a more fun way to watch the sport in particular contests, when compared to the unified rules, well, let's be honest, there are more than a few differences. Number 5. UFC 9 I'm sure some of you are already aware of the debacle that was UFC 9. Amid the budding years of the promotion, they were thrust into regulatory-infested waters with each state weighing up the pros and cons of allowing their show to roll through town. It was at this event in Detroit, Michigan, dubbed Motor City Madness, that the UFC would forego entirely the tournament format for the first time and schedule seven super fights. But right up until the day of the event itself, they were in a legal battle in the Detroit courts after Arizona Senator John McCain had launched a campaign against no-holds-barred fighting, calling it a brutal spectacle. As a result, the event 
event would be allowed to take place, but under modified rules. For these fist fights, they would not permit the use of, well, fists, declaring that all strikes to the head must be delivered with an open palm, and the ever-so-effective headbutt was also declared illegal. Did that stop most of the fighters throwing punches? Not at all. Despite John McCarthy warning them in a conference before the event that a punch would send them straight to jail, it turns out when you close two men in a cage in a fight for their lives, some of them apparently don't really care. And considering no one was actually arrested after the event, it all seemed a bit pointless. Although it did lead to Ken Shamrock versus Dan Severin, a 30-minute split decision and quite possibly one of the most lackluster and boring fights of all time. Number 4. Sakuraba vs. Hoist Gracie before the Gracies worked to bring their form of jiu-jitsu to the mainstream by helping create the Ultimate Fighting Championship, they issued their own challenges to various martial artists around the world, calling for them to come and test their skills against what they believed to be the most effective martial art out there, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. These Gracie challenges became legendary, and they hoped to continue that spirit in the octagon, but after the inclusion of time limits, they removed their affiliation with the UFC. Still, many fighters with the Gracie name carried out their lineage to other organizations around the world, and more often than not, though, under a devised rule set. It was Hoyler who made his way over to Pride in Japan to face the legend Kazushi Sakuraba, demanding the bout take place with no stand-ups and no judges. But it was Sakuraba who earned the nickname the Gracie Hunter that night, kimuring him in 13 minutes. It just so happened that the following year he would meet family member Hoist Gracie in the second round of the 2000 Open Weight Grand Prix. And despite it being part of a regular Pride tournament, of course, there were stipulations put in place by the Gracie family in the event that the two fighters met. Mainly the demand, again, for no time limit and the removal of judges. Basically a fight to the death, right? Well, not exactly, but it did mean the two men were locked up for six 15-minute rounds before Horian threw in the towel, declaring Sakuraba the winner. Number three, a cross-gender contest. Right, where to begin with this one? Firstly, the idea of a male versus female MMA contest is already, for a number of reasons, pretty ridiculous. But try telling that to Russian promotion Our Business, who matched up three and one professional female fighter and athlete Darina Madziuk against YouTuber slash blogger and male of over 500 pounds Grigory Chistyakov. Yeah, I told you I didn't know where to start with this one. Gender disparity aside, arranging about with someone literally eight weight classes apart is pretty ridiculous. With a 390-pound weight advantage, that's two Yoel Romero's people, Grigori swaggered his way to the cage to what he apparently thought would be an easy contest, showcasing his surprising athleticism once he hit the canvas. In the opening frames, it looked for a moment as if the matchmakers had made a huge mistake, with Grigori grabbing hold of Darina against the cage as her hands disappeared into his midsection. But after she tagged him with a few right hands and he belly flopped to the canvas, it was clear the fight was already over. Even our beloved Kaposa asked our lord for salvation from this one. Darina got picked up by none other than Bellator, but has yet to secure a win. Number 2. Jean LaBelle vs. Milo Savage there's often debates about the first MMA contest to take place, and across the world and cultures there are examples of early organizations from Pancration in Greece, London Bartitstu, Valle Tudo in Brazil, right up to modern-day MMA. But the first televised MMA event came in 1963 with none other than the legend Judo Jean LaBelle who took on Milo Savage, a professional boxer who also had an amateur wrestling background. Jean had been cross-training martial arts from an early age, from learning catch-as-catch-can wrestling with Ed the Strangler Lewis at age 7 to training at the legendary Main Street Boxing Gym by 11. But his fame truly came from his exploits in judo, winning the US National Championships in 1954 and 55. But it was boxer and writer Jim Beck who declared any boxer could be any martial artist and offered $1,000 to any man who could prove otherwise. Well, among the many students of Gene LaBelle, it was the Kenpo Karate, not ESFL legend Ed Parker, who encouraged him to take up the challenge. Why me? 
He says, Gene, everybody knows you're the most sadistic bastard in the world. But it was revealed Gene was to, instead of Beck, be matched up with professional boxer and number five in the world, Milo Savage, on December 2nd, 1963. So this is a mere 40 years before the unified rules of MMA have been established. So how did they organize this one? Well, it was five three-minute rounds in four-ounce gloves, and seeing as Beck thought Gene was a karate guy and had no idea the difference between that and judo, he was told he was not allowed to kick or even punch, but Savage was able to throw any punch he wanted. Gene was also not allowed to perform takedowns or tackles below the waist, but Savage would in turn wear the traditional gi, which he greased to with Vaseline. The two went back and forth in what is actually quite an epic fight, with Milo defending the takedowns and submission attempts on the ground surprisingly well, throwing hands in the clinch while Gene struggles for position and trips, but it was the fourth round where Gene was able to take his back and rear naked choke him unconscious. Number 1. Muhammad Ali vs. Inoki Understandably, Muhammad Ali spent so much time reminding us all that he's the greatest that once he'd actually gotten to the position where we all agreed with him, there was little else left for him to prove. A few months prior to his victory over Joe Fraser in the thriller in Manila, he met Japanese wrestling champion Ichihiro Hata and asked if there was anyone in Japan that could challenge him. According to Josh Gross, author of Ali vs. Inoki, Ali offered $1 million if they could beat him. It was Inoki, of course, who accepted the challenge. Both Ali's trainers Angelo Dundee and Dr. Ferdi Paccio confessed they thought the match was stupid, and people warned Ali he could have fingers poked into his eyes or his testicles ripped off. We'd already seen Ali take on Gorilla Monsoon in a wrestling exhibition, and we all saw how that went. So, most of the general public believed the contest was fake, and being that Inoki was a pro wrestler, the outcome would be scripted. Some bookies didn't even take bets for the fight. So, a wrestler versus a boxer, this is an MMA fight, right? But what were the rules exactly? Unsurprisingly, they weren't finalized until the lead-up to the event. Inoki was banned from kicking unless he was kneeling, squatting, or on the ground. He was not allowed to throw or grapple Ali either. According to the Japanese Wikipedia, this was because Ali didn't realize until after agreeing that the fight was actually to be a real contest. And as such, his camp demanded changes to the rules, which weren't revealed until right before the fight because, obviously, I mean, this isn't exactly what people were signing up for. What could Inoki do? Well, I mean, what could he actually do? The answer, not much. As any good MMA fighter knows, the best bet against a boxer is to target the legs, and he did just this, in the only way he could, from the flat of his back. More action. Getting better and better here. Ali taunted and called him a coward as Inoki kicked his legs so much he developed blood clots and almost had to have them amputated. Inoki even swept him at one point and got top position and squatted on his face, but Ali, of course, immediately grabbed the ropes, which was also another rule allowing the fight to return to the feet. To think we would actually see some MMA for one instant! Anyway, this one was a total farce, yet remains pretty influential in the sport's history. Ah, to think what could have been. And a big shout out to Lotten the Casual Veerkant for editing today's video, and you really should follow him at Lotten underscore Veerkant on Twitter. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.